The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor, writer, director, Lena Dunham. From 2012 through 2017, Dunham served as the creator and star of the hit HBO series, Girls. She's now returned with a new film called Sharpstick, her first directorial effort in over a decade. The film charts the sexual awakening of Sarah Jo, a virginal 26-year-old whose life is upended upon entering an affair with her older employer. Here's a clip from the film Sharpstick, starring Christine Frozeth, Taylor Page, Jennifer Jason Lee, and John Berthal. Two people having sex together. Mom always says love can neither be created nor destroyed. But I've had my heart broken. You see, I'm not someone who is destined to find love, so when it appears in my path, I have to take it. Do you even get crushes? Not really. I feel like I was born with a crush. I was like in the nursery crushing on a fetus. Who wants to hear their origin story? Me. Okay, there you have it. You wanna know if he's really yours? You look him in the eye. And you say, do you find me beautiful? As a dad and a husband, that just can't happen. 
think you're wonderful, and that's it. This is sick. Like, good sick. Like, it's an iconic moment. That was a clip from Sharpstick, now playing in theaters across the country. To learn more about when and where to see the new film, visit sharpstickmovie.com. That's sharpstickmovie.com. In the spirit of Edward Albee's Three Tall Women, the film represents what Lena calls the three-way mirror of the female experience. And in each of these women, played by Frozeth, Paige, and Jason Lee, Lena has put some of herself. We talk about that at the top of this conversation, but we also discuss the years she spent making girls, the tumult of that time, the criticism she faced, the lessons learned, and a whole lot more. In the intervening years since the season six finale of Girls, Lena has been searching for a new story to tell. For the screen, for herself, and I hope by the end of this pretty vulnerable conversation, you'll be able to hear it as clearly as she does. I know I did. So, without further ado, here is Lena Dunham. Lena Dunham. Nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you, Sam. I've heard a lot about you, and it's a joy to be in your presence. I'm overjoyed to have you. I'm overjoyed to be here, Sam. Also getting here, I had to walk on Hollywood Boulevard, which for me is like, I can't go there without feeling like a six-year-old who's like lost their mother in a Kmart. It's the craziest <laughs> feeling out there. When you're walking down the street, yeah. did you find your star on there? <laughs> I don't have a star. If I did, I know I wouldn't find it because they would have put it like down at the bottom of a water <laughs> heater. Like it wouldn't be even directly on the pavement. It would be sort of like below a grate. You'd have to climb down to where the mole people live in the much unused subways of Los Angeles. Maybe after this new movie, Sharpstick. Then I could have a star. Also, I want all the listeners to know that this is the kind of guy who holds a pen in his mouth in thoughtful repose, which is the person we all want to be when we're thinking and aren't. Thank you for outing me <laughs> to the listeners. Can we start with this movie? It's your first movie since Tiny Furniture. Yeah. Which came out in 2010. When this project premiered at Sundance earlier this year, you said, I realized that after a decade of life in Hollywood, I wasn't taking the advice I always give to young artists. Find the story only you can tell and make it on the scale you can make it. What's the story? And why are you the one to tell it? So this is about a young woman named Sarah Jo who lives in sort of like Los Angeles, but a sort of very specific fringy Los Angeles with her mom and her sister. And she's 26 and she's experienced some chronic health issues and she has a sort of very specific naivete about her. And she enters into an affair with a man whose child that she's babysitting and it's sort of about that and then the kind of fallout, blowback experience of what it looks like after your first experience with sort of love and sexuality comes apart, um, which I think most people who didn't, you know, marry their high school sweetheart can remember that moment for them. It was one of those things, and actually the last time I'd really had it was Tiny Furniture, where 
just kind of came out of my brain and like just like fully formed, fully birthed. And it actually the entire thing generated from a conversation with our mutual friend, Janix Bravo, who is one of my favorite people and one of my most favorite directors. And we were talking about our love of very specific movies of the 1970s. And she asked me when the last time I'd watched Looking for Mr. Goodbar was. And I said, actually, never. And I watched it. And it sent me on this entire path of reflection about female characters' likability, what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. And I guess in some ways the movie was a reaction to that. And then three days later, this story was just sort of haunting me day and night. And so it was COVID, the middle of COVID, and I was really isolated at the time and I was barely seeing anybody. My dog, Ingrid, like I started to truly believe she could speak, you know, in a way that no one had to be concerned about. She probably can. I mean, I know that she can think words, but I would look at her and I would just say, just say it. Just say it. I can see you're trying to say it. Just say it. Just like my father. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry, too, to Sam's dad. <laughs> totally not true. Emotionally available articulate person. Yeah. I The amount of times that I make jokes at my parents' expense and then realize that the joke that I've made has absolutely nothing to do with who they are as a person is innumerable. The joke was just there. I just yeah. took it. It's there like a little grape you just have to pluck. And I'm glad you fall prey to that instinct too. Yeah. So I wanted to make something. I was like, I want to make something small on a scale that can be created during COVID. And it was like the same instinct when I was younger where I would go like, I have three friends in my bedroom. This is what I can make with three friends in my bedroom. Or if my mom and my sibling and me and our apartment, what does that look like? I mean, the budget was bigger than the budget was on tiny furniture, but it was, you know, very small indie. And we made it in December of 2020. Another lockdown had just started. For some shocking reason, the film industry was considered essential workers, which is... <laughs> <laughs> well, after they see this film, you'll understand why. They'll really get it. They'll really get it. Um... Yesterday, I was I have a very close friend who's also very Christian, and she wanted to send her daughter to the premiere. And I said, I just want to warn you, it has some adult content. And then I said, sex, but no nudity. I think the message is ultimately empowering. And that, <laughs> so that should be my logline. Sex, but no nudity. I think the message is ultimately empowering. So the sex of this film, it harkens back to American cinema in the 70s. You mentioned looking for Mr. Goodbar. I'm also thinking about an unmarried woman. That period of films about complicated, sexually liberated women, did you feel like that was missing in 2022? I mean, I feel like that's been missing since then. I feel like that complicated, sexually adventurous woman of the 70s, there was this incredible moment where even, I don't want to say even male directors, but even male directors, and at that moment, especially male directors, everyone from Paul Mazursky to Cassavetes to... Hal Ashby. I mean, people were writing these really interesting, thorny, weird, sexy. And then it was almost like that gave way to the archetype of like female sex villainess of the 80s. That was more of like an Adrian Lyon, Brian De Palma move. Mm -hmm. When I started watching those movies in college, when I sort of like every other college student was introduced to the Criterion Collection at that point on VHS at my local college video store and referred to as Janice Films at Oberlin, at Oberlin, at what was known as College Video. And when they went out of business, I bought all of their Janice Films VHSs, and they are in my parents' attic. And my mom asks every year if she can throw them away, and every year I say no. <laughs> 
There is some art house programmer listening to this thinking, I got to get in touch with you. By the way, if someone was like, would you donate these? I would be like, it is my honor. Like, I would love to feel like I could hand (laughs) my complete collection of Janice Films VHSs, which includes such gems as Vagabond by Agnes Varda, my personal favorite, to someone who needed them. Because I don't even have a VHS player. But at that moment, I had a combo VHS DVD player and I was so hungry for it. And when I started watching those movies, like it just exploded my mind. And I think that in a way, that's the era that I've always been grabbing at. But that is like a way of making movies. They're also those movies don't have the same kind of focus on plot and three act structure Mm. that we often do now. While I have great respect for plot and three-act structure, I wouldn't call it my gift. I actually have that in my notes here. (laughs) That's not her gift. Not her gift. How do I ask her about that in a polite way? The first note I get on a script is always a structure note. Mm -hmm. I feel like no one's ever, like, said this dialogue feels clumsy and unrealistic, but they have said this is 82 pages of two women having one conversation. (laughs) I think there are worse criticisms. Who watches a movie and is like, God, can't wait for the exposition. (laughs) That's a really great question. Apparently some people, because of how movies are getting made. Can't wait for the scene where X guy explains the seven things that they skipped over in the story before. I know. There's always a moment in a movie where I'm really excited because I think they're not going to do it. And then someone comes in and explains to me what I've already seen. In the beginning of this talk, you mentioned the sort of triptych of these three women and their different experiences. Yeah. And I wonder, how do you wrestle with all three of those people that came from you and are each a part of you? Well, it's interesting you say that because I just was kind of realizing the other day how much the three women in the family, there's mother played by Jennifer Jason Lee and her two daughters, Christine Froseth and Taylor Page, one of whom is adopted, one of whom she gave birth to, but she actually seems to have more of a sort of emotional connection to her adopted daughter than to her biological daughter. And all of those characters, all of whom have totally different relationships to their sexuality, to their bodies, to their presentation, feel like me, like the one who's like a sort of performative influencer who's trying to be sexy, the one who's kind of like retired from her relationships with men and wears her pajamas all the time and literally is addicted to Benadryl. And then also this character of Sarah Jo who has dealt with this kind of illness that's given her a sense of separation from her own body and a lack of self-awareness coupled with certain kinds of awareness that are much more acute. And so it's an interesting thing because having written a lot of sort of ensemble pieces for female characters, I always have to find a way to feel like I can be in each of their experiences so that I can make it feel human and relevant. But this was a uniquely specific situation where I felt like I was almost like splitting myself into a triumvirate. And then on top of it, playing a fourth woman who also was dealing with her sexuality differently. She's, you know, heavily pregnant after IVF. She's gained weight. She's dealing with a husband who you find out has not been faithful to her and you're navigating that with her. And hasn't been faithful many times over. Many times over. It didn't really matter if that was a surprise to the audience, the idea that he hadn't been faithful many times over, but it mattered that it was a surprise to the character because part of the heartbreak is discovering that, which I think every woman, every person has had this feeling of discovering that sort of you are in some way less special than you thought you were. You've said that Sharpstick is more autobiographical than girls. The medical connection between you and Sarah Jo, 
you yourself having hysterectomy mm-hmm. are pretty clear. But I'm thinking about your character in the film, Heather, who makes good money as a real estate agent, but is incredibly busy and consumed with her work. And that busyness, it reminds me of what your life must have been like when you release Tiny Furniture into the world. In 2010, when you release it, you receive an email from Judd Apatow. Mm-hmm. And I feel like from that point onward, you're on this all-consuming trajectory. My dad always likes to say, shot at a rocket. He always goes, she was shot out of a rocket. Is that how he sounds? Probably he would be upset by the impression, but everyone else feels I do an excellent impression of my father. So, Okay, can you do it again? Well, he'd go like this. You know, it's a complicated experience, kid. You were shot out of a rocket. <laughs> I love that. What was in the email? The email said something along the lines of like, hey, this is Judd Apatow. I watched your movie. I really liked it. And then he said something really funny. He said, if you ever want some help making big movies that are a lot less fun to make with a lot more interference, get in touch with me with this office phone number. I thought it was a prank. My friend Isabel and I were like into pranking each other. We She'd like done a prank where she had like saved her number in some our friend's phone as like Mark Skateboard, who's someone they'd met and was like sending her strange messages. So I wrote back like, if this is Isabel, go fuck yourself. But if this is actually Judd, oh my God, I don't know what to do. And he wrote like, it really isn't Isabel. And then when I called his office, he and I asked, got asked to be transferred to him. And I thought it was going to be like, Mr. Aptel will call you back in 19 days. And they transferred me right into his office. And he said, hi, it's Isabel. And it was like the best. Was there a specific conversation you were thinking about? I actually was just having a really strong recollection the other day of when I sent him the first draft of the pilot of Girls. And I was so scared. I'd not written a TV pilot before. I didn't know how it was supposed to be shaped. I didn't know. And there was still a lot of shaping left to do. But he sent me an email and he said, I'm 10 pages in. You're so funny. And I just like, it was just the best. Like, I just remember being like, I, it's amazing how all the, you know, support and affirmation you need is like someone that you deeply admire saying, I'm 10 pages in. You're so funny. Mm. He's always a person that makes me feel safe and is always a person who's been just a place that I could return to. I mean, obviously, Girls was just a gift through and through. So so it premieres in April of 2012. April of 2012. When you begin to develop Girls at Silver Cup Studios in Long Island City, the New Yorker described you at age 24 as the person in the office with the most authority and the least experience, half boss, half intern. Did you see yourself like that at the start of the show? I think at the start of the show, I just saw myself as an intern. It was like I was an intern to myself. The intern that's on the poster? Exactly. Like I did the intern. <laughs> the intern who's in the trailer and who also has like is editing the show. I didn't know anything. Like I remember interviewing assistant directors by asking them, what does an assistant director do? Like I thought an assistant director was just someone who directed, but a little less than you. Like I had no sense of any of these jobs because I'd made a movie with six people and now I was going to make a movie with a, a full crew. And by the way, I thought that for like way too long. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> well, you're very precocious. So you probably thought it till the same age that I thought it. Wait, I'm precocious. You had a show at HBO at 24. I mean, it's so I remember my friend Isabel, the same one I thought was doing a prank to me when we turned 25. She said, Lena, this is so sad. We'll never be precocious again. <laughs> It really made me laugh. But I did. I felt like I was an intern to myself. I think even though I watched HBO, and I know this sounds naive, part of me thought it was going to be like 
300 people who thought that the show was pretty funny and we'd get to make 10 episodes of it. And then I would like go back to my life. Like there was no part of me that could. And then each thing that happened, I was like, well, this is interesting. Well, this is interesting. And then suddenly I'd been on a hiatus from my life for seven years or what I had previously thought was my life. And then when I returned to it, it was like coming back from outer space. It's like one of those movies where like a guy comes back from a seven-year space mission where they think he's lost and he's like, my wife married someone else. Yeah, they were in a coma. They wake up. Exactly. And everyone's like, we didn't think you were coming back. And you're like, (laughs) I told you guys I would be. (laughs) They left you for dead. Yep, fully. When you look back at this time, what were some of those challenges you didn't anticipate or couldn't foresee that you now know? I knew at the time that the stuff that I was dealing with in terms of sort of grappling with public conversation around the show, I knew that that was unusual. Which parts of the public conversation? Well, I used to think just the negative ones, but now I understand that anything that puts you in like an echo chamber feedback loop with yourself and then a perceived version of yourself and then back to yourself is just a challenge to the self Mm -hmm. that bifurcates the self. I knew at the time, okay, this isn't quote unquote normal. And I even knew to a degree that the public conversation around the show didn't necessarily resemble the public conversation around other things because it was so frenzied. And also it was like a conversation about a conversation about a conversation. Like it got pretty meta there for a while. But the thing that I didn't really recognize when I was doing it is I had gone from being someone who was a pretty big loner who spent, you know, all of my teenage life shut up in my room and a lot of my life till I was 24 shut in my room to being a person who was quite virtually surrounded by people all the time who had questions for me, had needs for me, needed responses for me. And parts of that, like the directing process, are really sacred and incredible. And parts of that, like being put in the position of being a manager of people when you're 24, you know, going to work at five in the morning and coming home at nine at night, how much it also took me out of the social universe that I was ostensibly writing about. Mm. So it was like I was supposed to be this like reporter of millennial foibles and actually didn't see another millennial basically from the time that I was 24 unless they were being paid to perform with me. You have this quote. It's almost like I took the few nights of my life that I went wild, got wasted, threw up and expanded them into six years. I was definitely much more of a millennial documenter than I was present in my millennial life. That's for sure accurate. It's not like, oh, sometimes when I had an amusing social experience, I wrote about it. Every <laughs> amusing social. Because I was having to squeeze that lemon for all it was. Of course. All its juice. You got six seasons. Yeah, you got six seasons to do. So it was like I'd go on one date and it would provide fodder for seven episodes. And also I was not like on the dating scene during my 20s. I was in one relationship. I was not going out because I was working. And then all of the social experiences that I was having which were sort of surrounding the, like, publicity around the show, like, the show can't then turn into, like, and Hannah met Ben Affleck? Like, that's not what... (laughs) Hannah met Mike Nichols? Yeah. Hannah had lunch with Mike Nichols and then saw him embrace Diane Sawyer across a restaurant and thought this is the most romantic thing I've ever witnessed. (laughs) Wait, Hannah's mentor was the late Nora Ephron? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like Nora Ephron herself would like that joke. Rest in peace. Right before season one came out in 2012... You had what you described as a meltdown that mirrored the OCD relapse that Hannah has in Girls. Mm -hmm. You then had to make the second season of the show, which you said was hard to perform because you spend so much of your life 
as a person with OCD or any kind of mental illness, trying to camouflage your habits, trying to appear normal. Despite that, you decide to do the opposite. You put your tics, your insecurities into this character on the screen for all of us to watch. And when I look back on your performance in the show, I can't help but wonder how the hell you manage that. Well, a very nice way of putting it, because someone else would be like, why did you do that? And why would you put yourself in that situation? And I think I thought, like, my tendency is always to try to spotlight whatever it is I'm feeling shame about. And what that comes from, you know, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand what it is to kind of be afraid of something and so therefore feel that you need to do it. Someone once just described it as being counterphobic, and I found that a helpful term. But I think at the time, my OCD was something I thought I had sort of like beaten. You know, I didn't understand at that point that like mental health is a ride that you're on for your whole life for all of us, no matter what form it takes. And so when it reared its head again, I was so afraid that I was going to like be discovered. Like I kept having these like obsessive thoughts that I was going to be like carried out of the girl set screaming on a stretcher, <laughs> which never happened. I don't mean to laugh at that. But no, it, it's, it's I a mean, good image. It I mean, it's be, a funny image. It is a funny image. And I remember like literally calling my parents and being like, I need to come home. Like, I remember my dad picking me up at the airport, and I was so anxious. I had literally not eaten in three days, and I was just so wound up because it was almost like OCD returning triggered then a fear about the fear and a fear about getting discovered and being kind of caught out as a fraud or even worse, someone who was just incapable of doing this job. Like, they'd be like, well, this is why we don't give shows to 24-year-old girls was kept kind of echoing in my head. And so... You know, the first season was so much about my shame around men, sex, dating. And the second season, then I shifted to where the shame had shifted, which was back to this feeling that I in some way had like a defective mind. But I do remember feeling when I was performing those scenes, the ones that involved the OCD stuff and the tics, like it was so much more vulnerable than being naked in front of a crew or doing a sex scene because there's some like model there for what they're seeing, but like those ticks and those OCD moments are so specific and so specific to who you are, they can appear so alien that my fear around it being looked at and seen was so great. And I remember just having to like almost just tell myself that nobody was there. What would you be doing if nobody was there? And the experience of doing it was really interesting in a vacuum and just overcoming that fear of doing it in front of other people and finding that it would be okay. And also, in a way, focusing on writing about it and performing it removed my focus from it in my own life. I mean, I was healing in other ways with therapy and medication, et cetera, but like it removed the obsessive focus on the obsessions. I mean, my biggest fear when I was like, you know, in fifth or sixth grade was that kids would know that I went to therapy. I remember like taking an ornate route like to the therapist's office as if I was going to get caught like a weird twice around the block. And then I remember once like that my therapist's office was in the same place as the pediatrician's office. And so I ran into a girl and doing this like whole song and dance about how I had the do- I was at the doctor because I had strep throat. And I'm like a terrible liar. So like you can only imagine how much this girl was like, mm, I'm only in fifth grade and I know that she's going into a therapist's <laughs> office. And my biggest fear was that other kids would know I took medication. And so it wasn't really until I did that OCD stuff on girls and people responded, I know exactly how you feel. This is me. I did, I've done that too, that I realized just how kind of not 
alone I was. Like there's this AA term, which is like term people experiencing a sense of terminal uniqueness. And I think until then I'd experienced a real sense of terminal uniqueness. And then it was so comforting to realize how actually run of the mill it was. And now people come up to me often and go like, I have OCD. Thanks for talking about this. Or or just say they have, you know, a health issue, a mental health issue, whatever, or grappling with something. Now people get off of Zoom, work Zooms, to say that they have to go to, to therapy. Like, we live in a different world, but the different world started for me with that moment. Started in public. The different world started in public. And it is does sort of mirror the fact that like I wasn't like a kid with like a true gift for making friends. I had I had some but not the most and I never quite knew what to do with them. And so a lot of things for me started in public. A lot of things. I don't know. I uh I hear that and I go that sounds like a lot and it sounds like a lot to the weight of that sounds like a lot to me. Well, Thank you. And thank you for having such an empathic way of hearing it. And I think there were so many things that I didn't let myself know throughout my whole life, but particularly once my career started that I didn't or maybe couldn't let myself know were a lot. And, you know, I'm finishing a book now that I've been writing for four years that sort of four years ago, I started writing a memoir of sort of the past six years. And now it's turned into a memoir of the past 10 years and the past 12 years. And it is wild to me how much life it contains. And everyone's life contains a lot of life. But I did have what I hope were the most, in many ways, eventful years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into some of that because the whirlwind of making this show, it's interesting because when people talk about girls, so much of the conversation is not about the content of the show or the characters of the show, but about the character of Lena Dunham. That's like you've heard this before. I mean, not maybe articulated as beautifully as you just did, but yes, totally. And it's something I sort of definitely experienced. And it's why it's such a relief to me when I get to have conversations that are sort of about, I mean, that have this level of depth or also touch on like the qualities of being an artist, because there were so many conversations for so long that almost didn't even need to require me. Like I was in them, but it was like, you guys could absolutely do this without me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I read all those. <laughs> Since we have some distance from the show itself, is there a scene or a specific episode that you can now, at 36, say, I'm really proud of that? That's a great question. You know, I I think the one that I wrote that I look back and I go like, God, that was sort of interesting. And you were like really trying some stuff, young lady, was the... Panic in Central Park, which is when Marnie and Charlie meet again. It's, it's yeah, unnerving. I think it is unnerving. It's, I think it was also like I'm sort of proud of my younger self that I was able to sort of step outside of like genre and expectation and write something that was, by the way, which was, again, inspired by a movie from the 70s, Panic in, in Needle Park. And it was an attempt to also kind of talk about I think I didn't know this at the time because it involved this character who had left the show and this actor who had publicly left the show coming back. It sort of involved like an attempt to kind of like grab back at a previous time when making work felt easier and, and more intuitive and less dragged down by the conversation. And just like these two characters are kind of spend a night in nostalgia and then wake up to where they actually are. That's sort of what the 
I love the shiver that you just did. I, that's sort of what the... <laughs> yeah, because I rewatched it a couple of weeks ago, and, and that's how I felt. That's how I felt when I watched it when it came out, and it's how I felt years removed. It's unnerving, that I'm episode. so glad, and I'm and so I think I'm proud of, of that, because there were moments where even when I couldn't be, maybe for my own survival, completely aware about what was going on for me, that I could write about it. I could still write about it, and also... I'm proud that even at that point, you know, season five, steeped in all of it, I was still finding that private space to like spin off into something and take chances. This is from season five. It's from season five. It's when Chris Abbott's character, Charlie, who left the show after season two, came back for one episode. And it was this kind of beautiful meta thing where we kind of got to close up this story with him that we hadn't gotten to close up both personally and professionally. And it had a real sweetness to it, even if the episode is ultimately not that sweet because he turns out to be a, an injecting heroin junkie. All right. Why don't we take a look? This is from season five, episode six of Girls, titled The Panic in Central Park, starring Christopher Abbott and Allison Williams. You live here? I do. There's a garbage bag on the window. Yeah, well, I sleep late. So get curtains. Actually, you know what? Never mind. I'm not here to change you. I don't need to change anybody anymore. What am I going to do about you? (laughs) What if we ran away? I'm serious. What if, like, the last few years were just a bad dream and we ran away and opened up a general store? Somewhere where they need a general store. I got cash. I got a bike. We can go wherever we wanted. We don't have to tell anybody if we didn't feel like it. I don't need any of my stuff. No. I don't. I really don't need any of my stuff. Hmm. I hate a lot of my stuff. (laughs) I'm serious. As soon as the sun comes up, let's go. But what about all of the time? Hmm? Does that bother us if we don't let it? You mentioned this tendency twice now about keeping yourself at a remove from the goings on of the show, the sort of, the sort of I guess machinations of making a show. Yeah, was that out of self preservation because you had to keep making these? I think that I tried, and for a while I got to keep myself at a remove from it precisely because I was still making them, and so the show offered this kind of cocoon from the conversation around the show. But then at a certain point when something gets loud enough, it's like, even if you don't look at the internet, like a friend will text you in the morning like, so sorry, hope you're feeling okay. And you're like, what happened? It would just be impossible to keep things completely separate. And I think also sometimes there was like the misperception that just by the way that I sort of responded to questions or spoke in interviews, which was always with sort of like a a blunt and kind of unfiltered presence that I wouldn't necessarily have now just by virtue of age and where I am. I think people thought I was in some way attempting to continue to stoke it. You know, my dad always jokes that I would like make these sort of in-your-face audacious things happen on the show and then be so surprised that anyone was having any kind of response at all. And even when Sharpstick came out and I was like, Papa, it seems like the reviews are a little bit divided. And he was like, what the fuck did you think was going to happen? And I was like, to me, I'm always making something that feels just like a, um, 
like a natural extension of a dialogue that I want to be having. And then it's not until it hits some other That you've already been having with yourself. That I've already been having with myself, as all the best dialogues are, except for this one. This one's really nice. <laughs> and then um, and then I'll be surprised at people's response because to me, it feels like such a natural conversation to have and such a natural subject matter. And then other people kind of remind me of what may feel provocative to them. All these conversations that you're alluding to, these sort of meta conversations about the show, you in the show, how the two dovetail between Hannah and Lena. Yep. In that period, in those years, which of the criticisms do you think were fair and which do you think were unfair? That's a great question. I mean... I tend to think that any criticism that was someone saying that something that I said made them feel hurt or that it was insensitive to like someone else's lived experience, like those things, I tend to just take it face value and go, absolutely, I hear you. I'll do better. Like that's just I think that just should be everyone's response. I don't really understand a different response. Mm. It doesn't mean that you'll always nail it. But the other thing that I've learned is that I don't have to respond to everything, which means I say less things, which means that happens less. So that's a great like lesson of my first half of my 30s. Um, <laughs> and about how the show could have done better in terms of diversity and inclusion. Yes. Why would I ever fight that? And I was so glad that the show was a generator for dialogue around that. And then I guess the ones that I would be like a little more kind of, you know, when there's a when it goes into like all the like Lena Dunham is a child of Hollywood. I'm like, that is a misunderstanding of what two artists in Soho's child has access to. The conversation around that just seemed to grow a little out of control. I mean, I remember I once went to Oberlin to give a talk and a kid said, what does it feel like to be a a line item in the history of privilege and oppression? And I was like in a creative writing class and it was like, girl, season three. And I was like, oh my God, like something is happening that I was uh, not prepared for. It was almost like a satirical piece of dialogue, but it was also he was capturing something that was happening in the conversation around me. I mean, that one drove my parents crazy because they were like, oh my God, we've been like working our butts off here as two sort of like artists who are, you know, have interesting careers, but are not by any means, you know, like running Art Basel and rocking the Hamptons. And suddenly this is the conversation around our child. I remember like at one point someone figured out that like I'm literally like 90th cousins with a member of the Tiffany family and was like, she's a member of the Tiffany family. And I was like, we're related. Like two of our relatives had sex in 1412. Like I can't control that. Everybody on the East Coast was having sex with each other in 1412. But um, <laughs> and I also think that Obviously, the conversation about my body was out of control and insane. And no one actually now we have enough education not to talk about people's bodies that way, whether it's to critique the way they use them, critique what they look like. But you know what's kind of nice is to realize that, like, when you say to me which critiques were founded, which ones were unfounded, now my memory only flashes back to the ones that were helpful and the rest of them have actually kind of cleared away. But here's the thing I think was really my takeaway, is that I was so lucky to get this chance to be heard that a lot of other people who feel strange, different, unseen, unheard in so many different ways get. And so many people feel so fucking silenced by this culture. And if I took any lesson away from this, it was that. 
I've always said that the meanest thing you can say to another person is shut up, no one cares. And obviously that's not actually the meanest thing you can say to another person, but the spirit of that, the spirit of making another person feel like their experience doesn't matter, their voice doesn't matter, and they don't exist is truly, it's an evil thing to quiet other people in that way. And if I can be of service at this point in my life in helping anyone else Mm. have the kind of chance that I did to express myself. And that's the reason that I have a production company. That's the reason I produce is because I just want to create that safe space around younger artists or artists who haven't had that chance and artists who are living in more marginalized spaces to be able to do that. Putting a pause on the conversation, we'll be right back with Lena Dunham. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. 
Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. So much of what we're kind of circling is this thing you had to do to learn in public like this, to fail in public. You have this quote, I think that if we look at our lives, we've all done things that don't necessarily gel with what we perceive our value system to be. And that's one of the most challenging parts of being human, is that you have an intact value system, and then you make decisions that might fall an inch outside of that value system, or in more dramatic cases, fall a mile. And I guess I wonder, for you, for me, for us, anyone listening, how do we grapple with that bridge between who we want to be and who we sometimes are? I mean, it's, I think it's the hardest thing in the world. I think literally that, the bridge between who we want to be and who we sometimes are is like where shame lives. And shame is the thing that generates so much of the pain. It generates so much conflict. It generates so much addiction and anxiety and fear. And I've also always been interested in characters in my work who kind of are unaware of the difference between who they think they are and how they appear to others and how they think they're affecting others and how they're actually affecting others. Like, I feel like in some way I'm always writing about that, what people do with their shame, how it causes them to act, how it causes them to misbehave. And I think the hardest thing that we have to do in life is have this, um, these two sets of understanding, one where we're being hard enough on ourselves to be able to like excavate and make change. And the other where we're forgiving ourselves for the places where we fall short and forgiving other people. And I have spent a lot of time both working on being working on being my harshest critic in the right ways and being good to myself in the other ways because, you know, when you're not, it catches up to you. So that's what I want. When you look at that period since you're writing this book, and you look back on that time at the end of Girls, 2016, 2017, where do you think you fell short and where do you think, oh, I'm really proud of that? I think if I had been looking at myself and my life in a more serious way, I would have gone, okay, I need a break right now. I need to take a minute. I need to go to ground. I shouldn't necessarily make anything and put it out for a while. 
I also have to remind myself that it was like, you know, a, sh- a show like that ending that is takes you from 23, you know, it was 23 when I started writing the show and I was 30 when we wrapped it and, you know, 31, just turning 31 when it went off the air. And I knew that I wasn't, I feel like I channeled like all the energy I should have channeled into like grieving it and trying to understand who I was in that moment into like writing a really good Instagram caption about it ending. Like I just didn't even know how to process it and then just tried to keep moving and didn't really know how. April 16th, 2017 is when the show goes out there. When it ended, where were you at emotionally? I was really tired at that point. Let's say this was five months before I got my hysterectomy. So I was really sick and I was working on a lot of stuff to try to keep myself healthy, but also didn't really quite understand how bad things were. And so I was kind of searching for answers in that place. Everyone in my life who knew me really well was sort of like, you need a break. And I was like, what does that look like? Would I even know who I am? I mean, I just kept trying to generate and make and think about what I was doing next. I was terrified of real, I was just, I was just terrified to pause because the- Terrified of real life? Yeah. And terrified, yeah, terrified of real life. That is what I was going to say. Thank you for seeing me start to form the R and then knowing what the rest of it was going to be. It was almost like you didn't want to say that. Mm -mm. I was like, I can't do it. But yeah, I was terrified of real life. I was terrified of what life outside of this kind of I mean, set is a really, and the process of making a show, I now recognize because I'm back in love with making things. I should say that, like, now I'm in this place where it's like I have an endless appetite for making Mm -hmm. things that also partially because I'm pretty focused on directing and writing. And I'm not, I mean, I'm in Sharpstick, but I'm not the majority of it. And not leading with your own visage is a really (laughs) nice relief. And so I feel more hungry and alive and ready to make things than I have I feel healthier than I did when I was 28? Like, I sound so old. I feel healthier than I did when I was 28. No, but you're talking about re-entering life. When you re-enter life when Girls is done, what did you find? I was like, uh, I have pretty much forgotten how to be someone's friend, daughter, sister. What does that mean? There's certain just rhythms to being in, in the world with people. I mean, even the fact that in my 20s, you know, I was living in New York and I'd get recognized a lot. So I kind of tended to, because I'm actually not the chattiest person when I don't know someone, I would sort of avoid going out because I didn't feel like, I love when people tell me that my work means something to me. I love when people love me. I love when people love me, but it was a little bit of like a kind of gawkier moment. And it was also when there was things like gawker stalker. So you were like, I don't, want to be reported at the grocery store. Like it was just a, it felt like a very specific moment for me and for the culture. So just there's rhythms to kind of just being a person in the world. You call your friend, you say, do you feel like getting a coffee? They say, no, I can't right now. Do you want to do it tomorrow? But because of the way my schedule was, I'd been like, would you like to get a coffee on Thursday between 4.10 and 4.25? Like, you know, where you go and hang out with your family for a week and you guys get back into the rhythm of loving each other and knowing each other. But because of my schedule, I was going in and I was going out. It was a lot of that kind of just not being familiar with the patterns of intimacy Mm. that used to feel more natural. And they had been disrupted at sort of like a pivotal age. And so I had to find those again. I had to figure out how to take care of myself when, you know, in an adult body, I had to figure out how to like, you know, I was never home. So I didn't even really know how to like grocery shop. Like it was very 
it was very basic in a way. Like in my 20s, I felt like I was like Tom Hanks in Big. It's such a good image. Thank you. Or like, do you watch BoJack Horseman? All of it. It's so incredible. And do you remember when Princess Carolyn dates that guy, Vincent, who turns out to be two kids in a trench coat? It's three kids in a trench coat. Three kids in a trench coat. Of course. I was three kids in a trench coat. (laughs) For my whole 20s, I was three kids in a trench coat. And when I saw that, I was like laughing, but I was like crying because I was like, oh, my God, like BoJack Horseman understands that I was three kids in a trench coat. And that's why I had a BoJack Horseman wedding cake. Oh, my God. That's why we had a BoJack Horseman wedding cake. It was a shared choice. But um, but so, yeah, so I was three kids in a trench coat. I was Vincent, three kids in a trench coat. And Princess Carolyn's always like, Vincent, you're always at your office. Do you just care about business, <laughs> business, business? If you were like, Sam, I'm going to give you a thousand guesses as to who I was like. <laughs> Would you have guessed? No. That? No. I could have got Tom Hanks as big. Yeah. The three kids as Vincent and Bojack Horseman, it's so perfect. Thank you so much. Well, now that you understand via the Vincent and Bojack Horseman image, you will understand why I had a little bit of trouble reentering life. And the thing that is hard to remember, especially when you're in a business that's as obsessed with relevance as the one that I have somehow found myself in, is that it's okay for things to take as long as they take. And it just took a minute for me to figure out how to manage my body, my life, my creativity, to do it in a way that was sustainable. And what feels so nice, like even on this sharp stick, it's like I'm doing a reasonable amount of press, what's reasonable to me, which is smaller than what a lot of people do. And, you know, talking to people who I really admire, like you, and no longer feeling beholden to the kind of treadmill like one time I did do that thing where you stop on a treadmill and get thrown off the back. Oh, really? In a hotel gym. I just like got distracted by like an episode of old Ricky Lake on the TV, literally, and just got hurled back and hit the wall. And I was like, whoa, I thought that only happened in like bad sitcoms. This is real. I thought it only happened metaphorically. Yeah. And I think it can really happen and you can really hit the wall. And I think that's what I was scared would happen in my 20s if I paused Mm. or even when girls ended if I paused. And you know, it kind of did, but I also kind of survived just like I survived actually hitting the wall when I actually fell off a treadmill. Did that happen in 2018? Did I actually fall off a treadmill in 2018 or did I emotionally fall off? Because <laughs> I think you might be referring to me getting sober and that did happen in 2018. I was trying to be graceful. You were so graceful about it. But when I think of 2018, I think of getting sober, which is why, yep, I've been sober since 2018. You get a hysterectomy? In 2017. You break up with your boyfriend. Yes, which now I recognize happens to everyone. Yes, but but it's someone you were with for a while. Totally. But at the time, you know what it was? It was a tonnage issue, as my therapist at the time would have said, which is like any of those things might have been okay in isolation, but all of them at once, all compounded with some public life stuff. I had to pause and I got sober, which was, you know, incredibly useful for me. And one of the reasons I've talked about it publicly is just because Again, it was one of those things where the minute it happened, I was terrified for anyone to find out. This was from Clonopin. It's a benzodiazepine, which are, you know, for anyone who's who's used them, know it's a very powerful anti-anxiety medication that is, I would argue, quite overprescribed. And I don't think the dangers of its both addictive nature or how hard it is to um, withdraw from are really discussed mm-hmm. uh, much. You were taking that since you were a kid. 
I'd been prescribed it for the first time as a kid, but until my sort of physical health really started to deteriorate in 2016, that's really when my dependence on it started. Was there something in 2016 that precipitated, that caused that? It was the last season of Girls. I had three surgeries. You know, my grandmother passed away. I was sort of trying to figure out where I was in my personal growth chart at the same time as looking at the at the show coming to an end. I turned 30. You talk about personal growth like almost sarcastically. But I'm really serious. It's funny. I think I talk about it sarcastically because I'm actually so earnest about it. And are you embarrassed about being earnest about it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, personal growth. Like if you heard my sibling and me, we were having a conversation the other night and we're just like, I feel like I'm at a really positive place in my spiritual development. I feel very awake. Mm -hmm. And I feel, and but we're like, 1,050% serious. Like, you can be earnester. Like, okay, it really matters to me. My emotional and spiritual development matters to me deeply, and it's something that I spend an enormous amount of time pursuing. And obviously, my work is a part of that, but I've realized that my work isn't all of that. Mm -hmm. You know, when you put your OCD into girls, and since then, people come up to you and say, oh my God, I have some of that. Yeah. I never seen that on a show before. The part where you make this big dramatic turn in your life where you where you decide to get sober, I imagine many people hearing this will feel the same that that have had addiction issues. I hope so because you know, I never planned. I was like, I'm not going to talk about this because what if people think I'm unreliable or da, 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 da. and I actually had one of my agents was like, uh well, it's way more reliable to deal with a sober person than a not sober person, <laughs> so you should say it. And I was like, oh my God, that's the best take. But again, the response this was- This seems like a good thing to me. Really amazing. And it also is something to celebrate if it's something that you need to do. And the other reason what I like to talk about is because as a teenager, I got drunk like twice. Like I was really? not- Yes, I was a straight up nerd. Nerds can get drunk too. Nerds can get drunk too. But I was the kind of nerd who, like, stays home and watches the Jennifer Aniston, Paul Rudd romantic comedy, The Object of My Affection, with my grandmother, not the kind who gets drunk. Like, that was literally my idea of a good time. And in college, I got drunk, like, three times, but always with disastrous consequences. <laughs> so it's, like, that kind of thing where it was, like, it was predestined. And then I think the fact that also so many people have a picture of addiction as something that happens because you're out or you're raging or you're partying or you're unproductive— and any kind of person who's experiencing any kind of life can start to grapple with chemical dependency. And I also really love the people that I've met through sobriety, and I really love the conversation around it, and I really love how it makes me show up to every single day with the ins and the outs and the goods and the bads. What does that look like, that shift from when you did use clonopin and when, and, and when you don't. What's that well, shift? Well, it's funny because it's not even the difference is like, oh, back then I was always, my mood was always dulled and now it's not. It's almost like even if you're not, you just know, always know you have an option to kind of like check out or move oh. away. Like I remember telling someone I was dating briefly after I got sober that I was sober and he was like, well, what do you do if you like want to relax? And I was like, I don't, I guess I like breathe or meditate or read a book. And he was like, what if it's like really late in the day? And I was like, and, and that's was, who you married, right? And that's who, and that's the man I married. <laughs> you know, my husband, and I've actually been sober for the exact We He got sober right around the same time that I did. So we started talking about that immediately. And so the amount of talk about personal growth in our home 
would be exhausting for most. I come into the kitchen and say things like, I've had a huge revelation, both spiritual and professional. Would you like to hear it? And he's like, me too. I just hope he's not offended by the joke I made. No, he's going to literally love it. Okay, good. And love you and love your hair. <laughs> okay. On the other side of rehab, you seem to have rechanneled your focus towards writing and making and directing in a way that feels healthier to you. It does. My mom always quotes this one art dealer who she met who in the 70s went, I'm a very ambitious woman. But um, <laughs> I am a very ambitious woman, but in my own way. Did you feel like you couldn't say that before? Yeah, because I also felt like I was always kind of doing this little dance of like, sorry, this happened to me. It was an accident. Da, 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 like like that kind of thing. And now I feel like I can say, but I'm I'm an ambitious artist, which is different than being ambitious towards celebrity and which is different than being an attention hound. And so now I can differentiate all those things and and also recognize that being an ambitious artist is being a dogged artist, which is also not to, you know, spend all my time calling it misogyny, but it's like that's an admirable state for a male artist to be in is dogged, obsessive pursuit of their creative truth, often at any cost. And I'm not an at any cost person. I care a lot about the cost. But so my ambition level hasn't changed. I was prolific in my 20s, but in this kind of like duck kicking under the water, wasted energy, exhausting way. And now I feel like I have a much more even understanding of my abilities, how to channel them. And the thing that's cool about that, I my dad and mom always told me about being an artist, but I didn't know, is that it just gets more interesting. And it, and you always continually feel like you're learning again. And you, it just never stops being interesting, which how many things can you say that about? You have this quote I like. You said, my parents taught me that you can have a creative approach to thinking that is almost scientific. You don't have to be at the mercy of the muse. All you need is your own internalized thinking process that you can perform again and again. What's the process now? Well, when I'm in process, I'm sort of always writing as I'm walking around, as I'm in the shower, I'm sort of like collecting dialogue. I'll keep keep very extensive notes app with sort of like snippets I overhear. And so that's, there's kind of like a pre-writing process. It's just like really filling myself up almost to the point where I'm just like bursting to write. And then usually I have an outline and then I'll divide the outline up with like a certain amount that I want to achieve on every day. And something that I learned was I used to, when I was younger, write in these really long, exhaustive spurts. And now I do something that's much more kind of humane where I take a chunk and I'll go, okay, this is what you're going to write today. You're not going to write less than this. You're not going to write more than this. It's going to be exactly that. So when you stop, you're at a place where you're excited to keep going. And then I have a matter of days in which I get a first draft out, and then I have a matter of days in which, and, you know, of course, things go off plan. You get a cold. You get in a bad mood. You have a fight with your mother. Sorry, Mom. We're both going to say things that we have to then apologize to our parents for. <laughs> but, like, I like having a structure that I can then deviate from a little bit. That is scientific. It's taken time, but it works for me. And it's like almost like I have this feeling like this kind of like balancing feeling with the script where I can feel like I reread pages and I can feel where the openings and the gaps are and feel it's very like um, a draft of something feels like a physical thing to me. And then once I'm directing, what I like about when I then move into the directing phase is that, you know, writing is a long phase of being like quite antisocial. And then you move into the directing phase and go into this phase of heavily social collaboration that sort of makes up for all the time that you spend being alone being alone and being shut away 
You know what's missing from this conversation? What? An understanding of how both your parents have um, not only shaped you, but shaped how you make art. And I want to understand that. So growing up, you were extremely close to your parents. You still are. It's pretty involved. It's involved. So much so that sometimes when you were younger, you would joke to your friends and say, yeah, like I, I may sleep in the same bed as them if I get scared. <laughs> the joke was so convincing that some of your friends believed it for a second. They were like, it would make sense if you were in college and still sleeping with your parents. I wasn't, just you know, but it was that convincing. To which your father said, there might be the germ of a cautionary tale there for you. We've encountered this in the past, where your idea of the funny merges a little too convincingly with the real. It's funny to say, I sleep with my parents, but it's also too close to being massively weird. <laughs> and you will have to navigate this for the rest of your life. I mean, it's amazing because my dad said that when I was 24. And like, my dad's understanding of me is so profound. There's a reason why I've always written movies that have like women and no dad, because it's almost like my father is such a mirror to me. I will write about him at some point. I know I will because he's such a deeply specific and special man. I think he's a comedy genius, but he's so dry that people often can't tell whether he's joking or not. But that thing that my dad said about, you know, you're going to be navigating that for the rest of your life, like that was a tremendous piece of knowledge on his part that he was sort of saying like it was a joke, but he was also saying like, watch it, as he would say, watch it, kid. And my parents are both, I'm incredibly close to both of them. They're both very interesting and complicated people in their own right. And I mean complicated in the good way. But my father's a painter. He paints sort of, for people who haven't seen it, he paints pretty gnarly, like cartoonish, figurative images that he very much like me, like doesn't think are controversial. And then people will see them and will be like, that is the most graphic image I've ever seen in my entire life of like a bent over Neanderthal couple copulating or whatever. And so... It's like when people see it, they're like, oh, duh, like, I understand. And I think that that is something I clearly got from him. And my mother is a photographer who is always sort of focused on sort of surreal setups inside of her studio using dolls, toys, kind of like symbols of like children's play that are kind of like commentaries on the post-World War II faux Americana housewife thing in which she grew up. And the thing about my mom's work is, like, almost everything about the way that I light movies, shoot movies, frame movies, and almost everything about my aesthetic is formed by my mom's. Like, whether it's my interest in things that are have, like, a candy-colored hue, but there's something weirder operating behind, whether it's the fact that I literally just love, like, a still frame with people moving through it more than anything because my real education was watching her take photographs. And so, and when Jody Lee Leipz and I were um, shot listing tiny furniture, we did it all in these very still frames and really looked at a lot of my mom's photographs as sort of inspiration. And that movie, Tiny Furniture, is based on the idea of what my mom does in her studio. And then my mom also just being a radical woman in the 70s, trying to push her work in an extremely male-dominated art world. And the kind of inability to hear the word no that she had to have coupled with like an extraordinary sense of self not to be totally beaten down by the responses she was getting and the way that she and her friends who are like 
You know, her best friends are artists like Marilyn Minter, Cindy Sherman, Louise Lawler, Sarah Charlesworth, who's since passed away. Like these women who were doing really interesting work and had to find a new space for themselves. Like those women's sense of how to navigate the world is totally like the reason that I had any sense of self-assurance whatsoever. I keep this picture on my desk that is an Alex Katz drawing that he did at a party in the 70s of my mom and her two best friends and then walked up to her and handed her. And it's like my favorite thing. And you can just see like these three young women who are just like standing there, like making their own party inside the party. And I just love having it on my desk and looking at it while I write. When you lay it out like that, it's hard not to think about your place in the long familial arc and the footsteps you follow. It's funny because, like, I remember, like, you know, some kids have that feeling of, like, oh, my God, my parents are going to be so disappointed in me because I want to be an artist or I want to be a writer and I don't want to be a lawyer. And I remember thinking, like, oh, my God, what if I grow up and I decide I want to be a lawyer? <laughs> my parents are going to freak. Like, for me, I'm always, like, I'm not that impressed because it was kind of like a duh. Like, it was just, like, with the parents that I had, with the way that they raised me, with the values that they gave me, I was going to do something. And it's, like... I'm just always amazed by people who kind of created it for themselves or like found it for themselves. And I mean, my parents did. I joke about the lawyer thing, but they did make me feel like whatever I did was going to be okay. And I would hope that that would be something that I could instill in my kids. It's like that there's truly nothing that they could do, choose to do with their life besides be unhappy that would disappoint me. You as a kid, second grade, you find... Nora Ephron's This Is My Life, one of the movies that set you on this path, a path you're claiming is kind of predictable and obvious, but a path that, if this conversation is any evidence, was not that easy. If we're using the path metaphor, it's definitely been like one of those ones that goes like through the woods, down through a parking lot. It's the circuitous path you took after therapy and avoided. Yeah, yes, exactly. You are so good at circling back. It's the circuitous path that I took off the M train, three times around the Bowery Mission, back over and then down Broadway to get to my therapist's office. Well, when you walked out of that office, you'd find yourself back in high school at St. Anne's. Mm -hmm. And as a teenager... Your dream was not to be a TV star, as you say. I was a weird theater and poetry kid. I literally thought I was going to be a film teacher at my old high school and make experimental movies on the side. And I guess as we leave, in some ways, is that what you're inching toward? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I'd love to be a film teacher at my old high school. This past summer, I taught a writing seminar to high schoolers at this amazing school in London that focuses on the film industry. And they were so awesome. I don't even think they knew what my job was. They were just like, okay, this lady's here to teach us some things. A couple of them did. They probably saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood (laughs) and freaked out. By the way, like three of them were like, I saw you Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I was like, that's my street cred. Like (laughs) I was like, it used to be my 11-year-old friend, Ollie, who is so impressed that I was on The Simpsons, like he's so excited and he tells his friends at school, my friend was on The Simpsons. (laughs) And I'm like, if that's how I'm known to Ollie and his friends, what a delight. And if that's how I'm known to those teenagers, what a delight. As long as they're not like we saw a picture of her on the Internet looking stressed out with hair extensions. That's great. But um, (laughs) but listen, I love what I do and and I love the opportunity to get to do it on a bigger scale. But I'm also 
really like making weird little movies. And I really like having moved my life a little bit more out of the like white hot heat of whatever kind of public. Like I've realized that you actually I used to think, okay, to make your work, these are the rules about how you have to promote it, about how you have to engage in public life. And actually, I just realized like that much conversation with yourself about yourself is not particularly healthy. I also feel lucky that my parents and my brother were always offering a critique of America's relationship to celebrity, the capitalization of women's bodies, what it means to think that you're actually promoting your work when you're actually tool of a capitalist media and promoting your own destruction. Like the amount of like conversation in my household that like involved them talking about like upholding hegemonic norms or whatever. It sounded like that boy at Oberlin. So I feel like I was that was a gift to me and forced me to be analytical about it and to see it clearly. And also, I feel lucky that the people who are closest to me were never overly excited by that aspect of what I did or proud of me because that's what I was achieving. Like recently, someone asked me down the New Yorker, they were like, you must be very proud of Lena and everything that she's Mm -hmm. done. And he was like, am I proud of her making her work? Yeah. Would I recommend that even my worst enemy have a child who is famous? No, it's a disgusting cult. And he like literally went into this entire. I read the whole thing. Yeah. And later he was like, did that bother you? And I was like, no, go off King. King being your dad. I call my dad King. Mm -hmm. He thinks it's the funniest thing in the world. Every time he answers the phone, I say, what up, King? And one day he was like, why have you started calling me King? And I was like, well, it's kind of like a cultural thing, King. And he was like, okay, I like it. So (laughs) I call my dad King. Last thing I want to leave on, if we do this again down the line. I hope we do. This is so fun. You have a standing invitation. You know that. I'll be back next week. Well, maybe some distance, you know. You're 36. Mm-hmm. If we do this again in three or four years. Yep. Broadly, what do you want? I would love to have, you know, there are a few projects on a very concrete level. I'd love to have finished that book so that it's no longer uh, darkening my desk and I can sort of literally close the book on a certain chapter. Very excited for it. Thank you so much. I have some, uh, like, some other feature films that sort of have different, like play with genre in different ways that I'm really excited to explore and hope that I will have done. I'm really excited to make another TV show now with the amount of distance that I do have from girls. I no longer feel like I'd be making a TV show because it's what I know how to do and I just want to do that. I'd be doing it because I am so excited to dive back in there and see what the episodic medium has to offer now that I have these new sets of skills and new questions, new things I'd like to interrogate, as they might say in a graduate school program. Hopefully there will be things I said on this show where I'm like, wow, that showed a woeful lack of personal growth. Like, I hope that there were things that I've continued to push and try to understand and that I remain in like a continual state of amazement at how much you can know and still not know. And I recently made a list, made my husband make a list of personal goals We understood the assignment differently. So I was like, things you want to do that are just for you. They're not about work. And they're also not about like serving anyone else. They're just your personal goals. And so mine were like, spend six months watercoloring, restore an architecturally significant home, doing many aspects of it by hand. Uh, No. I know. that's, That's deeply unrealistic. I've always wanted to take jazz and hip-hop dance class. Not because I'd be gifted at it, but just because I think it would be pleasurable. (laughs) There's some different things I'd like to try. And his was like so nice. It was like, 
It was like, make more time on Sundays for us to watch movies. Cook some food. And I was like, oh, yours is like generous, genuine, and in the moment. And mine is largely unrealistic goals that I'll never realize. But I liked the instinct in me to do it, and I want to keep going that way. Were kids on that list? 1,000%. And those I didn't think of as a personal goal because I, hopefully, if you have a kid, you're not doing it the same way you are saying you want to restore an architecturally significant home and or take six months off to watercolor. (laughs) But I've wanted children for a really long time, and I've written about that. But the thing that is amazing is, like, someone who I love once told me, like, you'll come to be thankful for every part of your story. And the fact that I was not able to have kids when I was younger, the fact that my journey's been sort of held up at different moments by the logistics of not being a fertile person. I'm so glad about that because the person that I will be becoming a mom at 38 is like, or wherever and whenever it happens, is like so much more. It's a job that, of course, no one is ever entirely equipped for, as we are all evidence of. But I am so much more equipped and so much more understand why I want to do it, what is exciting to me about it, what I think that I will be able to offer, what I think I'm going to need support in offering. Like, all of that has clarified for me. I was just telling a friend today, I've always needed, like, really big lessons. Like, I was, like, the person who needed to get, like, hit on the head with a coconut to understand something. Like, it needs to happen big and loud. And I think I'm starting to have a more subtly tuned ear, but (laughs) for a while there. And so, like, I needed that big red stop sign and that process of analysis around that to get to the point where I thought I would make a actually pretty cool mom for somebody. And then in the process of also making peace with the idea that I'd probably do that alone, I met my husband. So it's just been, it's all happened just according to whatever the plan wasn't and is. I so look forward to that. You talked about how you ought to be grateful for all the parts of your story, even even the parts that are painful and hard and embarrassing, which you offered in your work, which you'd offered just by the nature of doing work in public. And uh, I'm so grateful that you shared so much of it here in this conversation. I'm incredibly grateful to be here. And thank you. And thank you for doing it on a Sunday and making me feel so welcome, considered, and also showing me a piece of yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Sam Fragoso. Lena Dunham. A true pleasure. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. We did it. We did it. You made that so lovely. Thank That's our show. Special thanks to Court Barrett and Sonia Hubbard at IDPR, and of course, Lena Dunham. Her new film, Sharpstick, is now playing in theaters across the country. To learn more about when and where you can see the film, visit our website at talkeasypod.com. Once you're there, you'll find our back catalog of over 250 episodes. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I imagine you would enjoy our talks with John Bernthal, Jenny Slate, Ethan Hawke, Laura Dern, 
Janixa Bravo, Miranda July, Steven Soderbergh, and Dolores Huerta. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to purchase one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy. You can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. If you'd like to support us in other ways, giving us five stars on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen, is still the best way for new listeners to find the show. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was taped at iHeartMedia in Los Angeles, California. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs this week are by Caitlin Dryden. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Clay Hillenberg, Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with Joey Badass. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.